All right, well, we are finishing Luke chapter 18 this morning, so go ahead and turn there. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 43. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, and we'll go down to the end of the chapter there in verse 43. Hear God's word. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Amen. Thus far, God's Word. Well, we naturally live according to a framework, or two, or three. Uh, uh, it could be a generational framework. It could be an ethnic framework. It could be a political framework which conditions the way we see the world, uh, people, places, and things in it. And one of those things is the Bible. One of the great challenges in coming to the Bible is, is on the one hand, keeping our framework from informing and controlling the biblical text. That's how we end up with things, or rather a refusal to do so, is how we end up with things like uh, geographically based theologies, or ethnically based theologies, or sexually based theologies. Well, on the other hand, uh, the challenge is having the text inform and control our framework. And that happens when we approach the Bible on its own terms, that is, as God's Word, and then embrace that word as eternally true. In fact, we even sang about it this morning. That is what God said to Moses and David and Mary and Martha and Peter and Paul is equally true for us. And then we rely on God's word. We rely on his word as our only hope and help in life and death, as did Charles Mallet who was a 
a former president of the United Nations. He was from Lebanon, and he wrote these words. I live in and on the Bible for long hours every day. The Bible is the source of every good thought and impulse I have. In the Bible, God himself, the creator of everything from nothing, speaks to me and to the world directly about himself, about ourselves, and about his will for the course of events and for the consummation of history. So this matter of framework factors into our passage for this morning. The two accounts at which we'll be looking are different. They're they're, uh, very different, in fact. The first account features uh, Jesus speaking to those who are closest to him, while the second account deals with one who can't get close to Jesus at all. Uh, The first account occurs in a quiet, uh, private setting, while the second account occurs in one that's uh, noisy and public. In fact, some scholars don't even see a connection between these two passages. But while these accounts certainly have their differences, they have one um, um, obvious similarity, and it's this. They both have to do with sight. In the first account, uh, we find uh, men who have perfect sight but suffer a degree, a great degree, of spiritual blindness. Well, in the second account, we see a man featured who suffers from physical blindness but has crystal clear spiritual sight. And the difference between these two men is one of framework. Even though the disciples could see Jesus, their framework blinded them from understanding Jesus on his own terms. And we'll see what their framework was in a moment. And while the blind man couldn't see Jesus, his framework allowed him to see Jesus with perfect sight. And we'll see what his framework was in a moment as well. So the the main point this morning focuses on framework or the lens through which we see life. Is your framework controlling shaping the way you read the biblical text? Or is the biblical text, the Word of God, controlling and shaping your framework? Your answer to these questions will determine, more likely than not, how well you know Jesus, and maybe even if you know him at all. So let's begin by setting the scene, which is the trailhead for the final leg of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, uh, a journey that began back in chapter 9, verse 53, when Jesus, it says, set his face toward Jerusalem, and now here is about to end, as we see in verse 31, he goes up to Jerusalem, which can be taken in uh, a couple of ways. Uh, Going up can be taken in a geographical way, because Jesus finds himself here at Jericho, which is 3,700 feet below Jerusalem, so he has a bit of a climb before him. Or it can be taken in a literary way, since uh, the final crescendo of Jesus' ministry begins here and will reach its climax in Jerusalem. So in that way, the story arc of Jesus' life and ministry is, is beginning to rise. 
Further, as Jesus begins his final leg, he's going to um, accentuate a point that he made last week. Uh, Last week, Jesus told the rich young ruler to forsake everything and to follow him. But as you recall, the rich young ruler, who was uh, extremely rich, as it's put in verse 23, he went away sad, couldn't do it. But this week, Jesus, who was even richer, as we just saying, uh, rich beyond all splendor, uh, uh, he essentially tells the disciples that everything he'd asked of the rich young ruler, he himself is about to do. And this leaves the, deci- the disciples uh, absolutely flat-footed and totally befuddled. So let's take a look at the interaction here between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, We see at least three things here. First of all, verse 31, Jesus says, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem. And then second, he says, at Jerusalem, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In other words, everything in the Bible of that day, which is the Old Testament, concerning the Son of Man, it is going to be accomplished. All the customs and ceremonies and structures and places and persons and attire, all of that is going to be accomplished, fulfilled, made good by the Son of Man. That is Jesus. And that's why when Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, he cried from the cross, it is finished. Because in fact, it was finished. The Old Testament had been fulfilled. The New Testament had begun. It's also why Paul could definitively write to the Corinthian church, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. And why the hymnist could absolutely declare, what, what more can he say than to you he hath said? The implication here is this, we need no other word from God than that which was written by the prophets, accomplished or fulfilled by Jesus, and explained by the apostles. A finished work demands a final word, and Jesus is God's final word about his finished work. At the heart of which, and this is the third thing, Jesus said to his disciples, for the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he'll be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. All of which caused the disciples to recoil, except for the last thing which Jesus said, which was, and on the third day he will rise, which apparently they didn't even hear couldn't even hear. What made these things so difficult for the disciples to take in? I mean, you'd think that if anybody could hear and understand Jesus' words, it would be the disciples. I mean, they had heard all of his talks. They had seen all of his miracles. They had eaten with him. They had camped with him. They had laughed with him. They knew his stuff. And besides, this was the sixth time that Jesus had informed them 
about his coming death. Two times over in no uncertain detail, even about rising again from the dead. So why were these words so difficult to hear? Well, for one thing, the sheer brutality of them made them difficult to hear, especially after Jesus and the disciples had received so much public acclamation and affirmation. Now Jesus is talking about mocking and spitting and flogging and death and all of that at the hands of the Gentiles, which as Gentiles, well, most of us here, I imagine, are Gentiles, kind of hits our ears in a weird way. Um, This is how one scholar describes this, this ignominy. He said, to be handed over to the Gentiles was the worst fate that a first century Jew could imagine. You see, the Jews were handed over to the Gentiles in the exile, which was the worst of all the covenant curses because it meant being outside the land of blessing, that is Palestine. To be delivered over to Gentile authorities then was to be under the judgment of God. So no wonder it was difficult for the disciples to hear Jesus delineate these brutalities. But another thing that made Jesus' words difficult to hear and comprehend was the framework through which they were seeing him, the lens through which they were looking at him. To be sure, Jesus was prophesied to be a reigning king. I mean, we see that in Genesis 49 and 2 Samuel 7 and Daniel 7, among other places. But the Messiah was also prophesied to be a suffering servant, a fact to which Jesus alludes five times in these verses, once in the Psalms, the rest in the prophet Isaiah. Further, Jesus' words were spoken in in the divine passive, which communicates that even in these brutalities, God would be present. But the disciples couldn't see this God-ordained suffering servant because all they could see was the reigning king. And they wanted a piece of that. Why do I say that? Well, consider what happened just before this conversation. It pops up in a parallel passage over in Matthew chapter 20 where you have two of the disciples along with their mother jockeying for places of preference in Jesus' coming kingdom. Or or the conversation that occurs just after this one. We'll see it next week in chapter 19. Where some of those in Jesus' entourage supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Or even what occurred following Jesus' resurrection. In fact, these are the last recorded words uh, of the disciples spoken to Jesus. They ask him, Lord, will at this time you restore your kingdom to Israel? So they were all about reigning king. They could not see suffering servant. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. The disciples couldn't have been denser. So concerning their response to Jesus... Luke writes three times over to make his point there in verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, 
if the disciples, who had a front row relationship to Jesus' life and ministry, had a framework prohibiting them from understanding the Lord on his terms, then surely you and I must have a framework like that, or more than one framework like that. So the question is, what's your framework? Is it a framework of comfort and happiness that prohibits you from seeing any trials or challenges as occurring within the realm of God's control? Or a framework of power that prohibits you from seeing any weakness or vulnerability in your life as grounds for God's strength? Or a framework of affluence that prohibits you from seeing modesty and simplicity as a platform for God's influence in others? Or is it one of silence and serenity that prohibits you from seeing the gospel as something for which God actually wants you to speak up and strive for? Or is it a framework of formal education that prohibits you from seeing God's heart for and influence among, even through those without a college degree or a high school degree? Is it a framework of family? This is a popular framework. Framework of family that prohibits you from seeing God's control over and love for each member of your household is greater than your own. Or is it one of selectivity that prohibits you from embracing the fullness of God's person? As a God who is not only loving, but justifying. As a God who is not only affirming, or rather nurturing, but chastening. As a God who is not only affirming, but denying. Thankfully, none of us need to be controlled by our framework or frameworks, since Jesus not only told us, but showed us how. He practiced what he preached. Uh, I love that about the Bible. You read in principle what you see lived out in person by way of Jesus' life. So, for instance, he defied the framework of affluence by serving the world like a slave. He defied the framework of comfort by living among his friends as a fragrant offering. He defied the framework of selectivity by obeying everything asked of him by his father, even to death. One scholar put it like this, what Jesus taught in words could only be comprehended in action. And I would add with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul could write, I can do all things. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm so grateful for the members of our Grace family for whom text (laughs) controls framework, for whom Scripture shapes and controls the way they approach and see life, even in the crucible. Like Don Allen or Matt Van Hook, who seated their hope in Christ 
at a time when they felt as if they had little or no hope at all. Or Tracy Manson, or Melody Litsaw, or Mary McBride, who remain encouraged in Christ and are even encouragers, happy encouragers of other people while they themselves live under the weight of discouragement. Or Dave Kuntz, or Doris Robbins, or Ruth Dix, and so many others who rejoiced in Christ even as they succumbed to death. Ruth, even in her dying breath. This is what can happen when the text of Scripture, with God's help, controls the frameworks through which we see life. Now, the man in the next account is one of those persons. Now, let's take a look at him, beginning in verse 35. We notice three things about him right out of the box. First, he's blind, which disqualifies him from any kind of temple worship, not because he's blind, that that wasn't the problem, but as a blind uh, person, he would bump into, inadvertently bump into things that were unclean, thereby making himself unclean, and anyone else whom he touched unclean. So he was banned altogether from any kind of temple worship. Second, we see that he's sitting by the roadside. He's not standing, he's sitting, which is a posture of vulnerability. And third, he's begging, which is an act of desperation. Uh, This guy reminds me actually of a fellow I saw as I exited the five at Imperial a few weeks ago. He was seated on the curb at the bottom of the ramp, vulnerable, desperate, but hopeful. And that's just like this man here who's sitting by the road hoping that someone will drop something in his in his pot. And he enters into exchange here with the passing crowd. We see here in verse 36, he's hearing this crowd go by and he inquires what it means. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I want us to notice a few things, beginning with his earnestness, because his earnestness is like that of Zacchaeus, whom we'll see next week. Um, Neither of them can get close to Jesus, so they'll go to all means to uh, uh, put themselves in his presence. Also notice that the response of the crowd to the blind man there in verse 39 is a lot like the disciples to the children back in verse 15. Uh, As far as they're concerned, children, blind people, they're beneath putting in Jesus' presence. In fact, they're both worthy of a rebuke for even trying. Finally, notice that the blind man is in no way dissuaded uh, by these uh, calls to be put down, the efforts to quiet him. In fact, it says there in verse 39, he cried out all the more. And he did so because this was the moment when desperation and opportunity met. He would not allow his hope to be silenced. Well, much to the crowd's surprise, and certainly the man's joy, 
we see here, Jesus heard the man's cries. He stopped and he commanded that he be brought over to him. And we see there in verse 40, it says, And when the blind man came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want for me? Uh, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Which is a fair ask, right? I mean, he's not asking for power. He's not asking for wealth. He's not asking for some kind of position. Rather, he's asking for the restoration of the natural order. He's asking that uh, he receive that which had been robbed from him by way of the fall. So Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Why did Jesus heal this man? Why did the blind man think Jesus could or would heal him? Well, the answer, as you might guess, is one of framework. Notice the framework of the crowd. They viewed Jesus in human terms, right? Uh, there in verse 37, they referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And to the blind man in subhuman terms, worthy of uh, receiving a rebuke and sitting in silence as Jesus passed by. But now notice the framework of the blind man, which is equally clear, but much different. He viewed Jesus in Bible terms. Look at verse 38, son of David. And again in verse 39, son of David. And to be sure, Jesus was the son of David. But the name Son of David not only has family overtones, but messianic ones as well. As one scholar put it, when the Davidic kingdom went away, uh, the, the messianic anticipation continued. In fact, it blossomed into messianic expectation. Further, when Jesus asked the blind man, what do you want from me? He responded to Jesus as Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. That term Lord is one of complete deference and absolute authority. In fact, up to that point in Luke, the title Lord is used by those, uh, a number of people approaching Jesus in desperation. I have a list here, one, two, three, four, five. This is the fifth time. Here's the great irony to me. The disciples had seen Jesus turn a few loaves and fish into a meal for 5,000, and they still weren't exactly sure who he was. But this man who'd never seen Jesus do anything was entirely clear on who Jesus was. In fact, he utters the first expression of messianic hope since the infancy narratives way back in chapters 1 and 2, which became the first directly messianic confession of Jesus in public. This guy gets it. Son of David, Lord. Because the text of Scripture had sway in this man's life and over his framework he was one who lived in hope and not hopelessness and thereby fueled his persistent cry. I like what Daryl Bach says about this. It was not an intensive scream, 
so much as it was an intelligent cry for help. The blind man's effort reveals the depth of his desire and belief that Jesus can do it. In a word, the blind man had, not a blind faith, but an informed, or in boxers, intelligent faith, a substantial faith. And it was to that faith that Jesus responded. And so, again, in verse 33, or 43, rather, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And isn't that the thing to which Jesus responds? He always responds to faith. Uh, When he healed a woman with the issue of blood back in chapter 8, he didn't commend her for her honesty or her humility. He commended her for her faith. When he healed the leper uh, back in chapter 17, he didn't commend him for his loud praise and his extended thanks. No, he commended him for his faith. The blind man had that faith in Jesus as son of David, Lord of life, believed that he could heal his blindness, and his persistent high-volume cries were an expression of that faith. He wanted to be heard. He had to be heard. In that moment when desperation and opportunity met, he knew that his hope could be realized. He knew who was in his presence. Following my junior year in college, I spent almost two months overseas. And on my last day uh, in Europe, in Amsterdam, went to the airport, looked forward to going home, only to learn that all the flights out of Europe to the United States had been canceled because of the U.S. air traffic controller strike. So when I inquired about how long it would take to rebook a flight, they said, "Uh, we're looking at two weeks right now. Well, there I stood, a bag in my hand and 17 guilders in my wallet, which I don't know how much, Case Van Hardingsfeld could tell you how much 17 guilders could buy back then, but it wasn't a lot. And I had this sense of rising desperation inside of me. As I stood there with my friends at a loss, no money, no lodging, and no idea what to do. Until it occurred to me, if I can get on a flight to Canada, then I can figure out how to get home from there. So uh, I went to the airline, I rebooked my flight, uh, got a ticket to Toronto, they took my bag, it was on the belt, it was being carried away, and then all of a sudden the belt stopped, and I saw my bag coming back. And they pulled it off and they handed it to me and they, they said, we're, we're sorry, this, this flight's been canceled too. So. Now I'm doubly disappointed, and my desperation is is rising to my throat. I can feel it right there. And I'm standing with my friends, and I turn away, and I see a fellow in a a cap, airline cap, and he's got some kind of rank on his epaulets, and he's holding a clipboard in his hand. He's got a pencil, and he's taking down names of people who are standing around him. And so I stuck my head into this circle, and began listening, and it became clear that he was collecting names of people who wanted to get on a plane to go to Toronto. And that got me really jacked up because 
I thought, why hadn't I been informed of this? And why do these people whose bags weren't even on that belt find themselves getting on a plane before me? So this was my intersection of desperation and hope right here. So I did something that was entirely uncharacteristic for me then, probably now. My idle screw is set pretty low, but I busted my way right into that circle of people and I asked, is this plane going to Toronto? And he said, yes, it is. And I said, nobody's going to Toronto before my friends and I do. And uh, I'll tell you, it was, well, I, I didn't care in the moment uh, how I sounded or how I was perceived. All I knew is that I wanted to get home, and that guy, that guy could get me there. I believed in him. <laughs> Gratefully, it was a different era. So they didn't haul me off to jail. In fact, they took our names and assured us that we and our bags would be on that plane. How come that sort of passion invades when it comes to matters of, of baggage and flights, but not our prayers? Is not our faith more often like the disciples? Mine can be. Jesus, oh, I believe in him. Yeah, man, he did some great things. And he has the potential to do some great things. I don't know if he can really do any of those things for me. But these passages teach us nothing else and they teach us the framework informed by my passions, my fears, my preferences, my doubts are going to keep me from understanding, going to keep me from seeing Jesus on his terms. That is according to the text of Scripture. In fact, it may keep me from knowing him at all. If I think about Jesus as I want to think about him. But a framework shaped and controlled by the word will allow me to not only see Jesus on his terms, but it's also going to increase my faith. And therefore, my capacity to successfully navigate life's challenges with the help of his spirit, even in reverently demonstrative ways. So that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. When I put on the whole armor of God, I will stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I will. And when I trust in the Lord and refuse to lean on my own understanding, he will direct my paths. He will. That kind of life leads one to follow Jesus like the blind man, who upon receiving his sight, you see it there in verse 43, glorified God. And in such a way that all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God as well. Amen. Please bow your heads with me. So what are the frameworks? What's, what's the lens through which you see the world? Is it one that's shaped by and subjected to the text of Scripture or your own preferences? your own strengths, 
your own weaknesses. Why don't you take a moment to ask the Lord to bless you with a hunger for his word, an expanding faith, and a framework that allows you to see this world on his terms and respond to it for his glory. Lord, for the one who has known you maybe even for years, but continues to place the full weight of their faith in themselves or their passions or their possessions or their impulses. I ask that you help them destroy every framework raised up against the knowledge of you and take every thought captive in obedience to you so that they might see and enjoy your world as you intended. And for the one who faithfully strives to see and respond to this world according to your word, Lord, I pray that you bless them like you did the blind man with answered prayer, a full heart, and a watching world that glorifies God with them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.